Hey there. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to let you know that Based on a True Story has its own Alexa skill now. Just say, Alexa, enable Based on a True Story to enable it. And then you can say things like, Alexa, tell Based on a True Story to play the latest episode. Or, Alexa, tell Based on a True Story to fast forward two minutes. Check it out and let me know what you think by leaving a review for the skill. Thanks. All right. And now, on with the show. If you're listening to this on the day it's released, then yesterday was April 1st, April Fool's Day. That means this episode is coming hot off the heels of the April Fool's Day special episode. So if you gave that one a listen, hello again. Nice to chat with you again so soon. But just in case you didn't, I mentioned at the beginning of that episode that the April Fool's Day episodes were originally intended to be a little something special for the anniversary of this podcast. As I mentioned in yesterday's episode, though, the true anniversary of this podcast isn't really April 1st, but April 2nd. So that means as of today, based on a true story, has been around for two years On top of that, if you noticed the episode number on this episode, it's something special. Episode 100. Now, I realize those are both things that only a podcaster really cares about, but still, I wanted to do something special for episode 100. Something that peeks a little into my own true story. You see, the story of King Arthur was my entryway into history. As a child, I was fascinated by the legends of King Arthur, the stories of Merlin the Magician, and more. As I grew older, I used to check out any book that I could from the local library on the Arthurian legend. I was hooked. Maybe that's why today I'm still fascinated by history, pretty much anything from the medieval times and countless conspiracy theories, supernatural things, and so on. The legend of King Arthur has it all. There's a lot of movies that have told the tale, But for this special episode 100 being released on the two-year anniversary of the show, we'll be looking at a movie about Arthurian legend that, at the time of release, was marketed to be one of the most historically accurate representations of the story. That's why, today, we're going to be learning about 2004's King Arthur. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we travel back to the time of King Arthur, let's take a little break to set up our two truths and a lie game. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, which means one of them isn't really a fact, it's a lie. You'll want to remember these. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, we now know for certain who the real King Arthur was. Number two, The term knights was not around in the 5th century like we see in the movie. Number three, there really is an ancient Roman wall in Britain. Okay, now remember those because as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And, of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Oh, and while I've got you here, have you ever wished you could get more based on a true story? Well, you can. 
Just sign up to be an official producer of the show, and you'll get access to all of the past and future bonus episodes. For example, there have been bonus episodes for movies like Becoming Jane, The Lost City of Z, Matahari, From Hell, Breach, Anastasia, and more. There's hours and hours of bonus content ready immediately. And of course, by becoming a producer, you'll get access to all of the future bonus episodes as well. Oh, and producers also get to pick a movie to jump to the front of the line. By that, what I mean is anytime somebody requests a movie, I add it to a list. And I currently have a couple hundred movies or so in that list. So if this is a weekly podcast, you kind of get an idea of how long it will take with 52 weeks in the year to get through a couple hundred movies. But by supporting the show and becoming a producer, you'll get your movie to jump to the front of the line and make sure it will get covered on the show. So if you want to learn more about that, as well as some of the other perks, you can hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of King Arthur. Our movie today doesn't quite start with those five words based on a true story, but it might as well. The first thing we see is some text that historians agree that the 15th century tale of King Arthur and his knights was born out of a real person. That hero lived a thousand years earlier in the Dark Ages. That is, well, let's say that's mostly true. By that, what I mean is that it might be an oversimplification to say that historians agree on who King Arthur was and when he lived. When you boil it all down, we just don't know. That's important to state up front and keep in mind throughout the entire episode. With that said, though, legends start somewhere. And if the movie is correct, that would mean the legend of King Arthur started a thousand years before the 15th century in the Dark Ages. That would be in the 5th century, somewhere between the years 401 and 500 CE. The period known as the Dark Ages ranged from around 476 CE to about 1000 CE, depending on who you ask. In fact, a lot of historians actually don't even like to use the term Dark Ages anymore because it it connotates uh, something negative. And really, the original reason for that name was simply because it was a period where we don't have a lot of document in history, because that was kind of from the end of the fall of the Roman Empire where they documented things, and then the rise of the Middle Ages where there were a lot more things documented there. There was this period of history where we just don't have that much documentation. And that lack of documentation is one of the reasons why we don't know a lot about who the real King Arthur was, or honestly, if his name was Arthur, or if he even existed. What we do have are a series of clues that can start to paint a picture of who he might have been. One of those clues comes right away with the bit of final text in the opening screen in the movie. It says, there's been some recently discovered archaeological evidence that sheds light on Arthur's true identity. First, we need to keep in mind that the movie was released in 2004, so the recently discovered archaeological evidence doesn't mean recent as of this year, but relatively speaking, it is still recent. And that's true. Of course, there's been a lot of archaeological evidence that have helped piece together the puzzle of the Arthurian legend. 
Well, the movie doesn't specifically state which piece of evidence they're referring to. If I had to guess, they're probably talking about a rather massive find in 1998 at Tintagel in Cornwall, which is a region on the southwestern side of the United Kingdom. At an archaeological dig there, they found an 8-inch by 14-inch slate. That's about 20 centimeters by 35 centimeters. On the slate was an engraving. The actual writing wasn't in modern-day English, of course, but translated, it means Artognu, father of a descendant of Kal, has had this built. Cornwall is a location that many have associated with the Arthurian legend for centuries, so a lot of people immediately took this to mean that Artognu, which is spelled A-R-T-O-G-N-O-U, by the way, was referring to the person that we know of today as King Arthur. Back in the movie, we get more setup to our story through some voiceover from Jan Gruffydd's version of Lancelot. According to him, by the year 300, the Roman Empire extended from Arabia to Britain, but that wasn't enough. They kept growing far to the east. On the map, we see in the movie there's an area called Sarmatia, home of the Sarmatians. Today, that'd be a region north of the Black Sea in western Ukraine or eastern Moldova, Although some evidence suggests that the Sarmatian territory might have stretched as far west as the Vistulia River, which is in modern-day Poland. But the overall plot point in the movie about the Roman Empire extending into Sarmatian lands around the year 300 is true. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but it was also around this time that the Roman Empire started a diarchy, or the rule of two. More specifically, it was in 285 CE when Maximian became co-emperor with Diocletian. Maximian ruled the western regions of the Roman Empire, while Diocletian took care of the eastern regions. Of course, this ended up splitting into a tetrarchy when two more Caesars were appointed a few years later, but for the purposes of our story today, that basically means that it was Diocletian who was in charge of Rome's military expansion to the east. So it was around 285 CE when Diocletian first ran into the Sarmatians, breaking into war around 289. Well, at least a scattering of battles. I don't know if we can call it a full-out war, because most historians agree that the Sarmatians were an Iranian nomadic people. Going back to the movie, is still during the opening sequence setting up the story, we see text on screen then that says, it's now the year 452, and as the voiceover continues to explain, that after defeating the Sarmatians, the Romans were so impressed with their cavalry that they spared their lives in exchange for incorporating them into the Roman military. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And... It couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. 
You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. That is sort of true. By that, what I mean is, like we just learned, it's not like the Sarmatians and the Romans were the only ones in the region. The movie makes it seem like the Romans were the only ones who wiped out the Sarmatians. But in truth, that was only a part of the reason for their decline. Another big factor was the Huns, who began their expansion and conquered large portions of Sarmatians and Germanic tribes in the regions, all peoples that ended up meeting the Romans on the battlefield at some point. And even though the movie mentions a date of 452 CE, that doesn't necessarily mean that is when the first Sarmatians were recruited into the Roman military. While Rome was definitely the largest empire at the time, the Sarmatian tribes, which again, most historians agree were a nomadic people, as we just learned, they were also attacked by the Goths and Huns. That's important because at one point in the early 4th century, the Sarmatians raised an army. Basically, they armed their slaves in an attempt to drive off the raiding Goths. They themselves weren't enough, so they gave their slaves weapons to help uh, fight them off. But that didn't really work because the slaves turned on their masters once they were armed. So the Sarmatians asked the Romans for help. Constantine, who was the empire at the time, obliged while drafting Sarmatians from Roman provinces to help with fighting off the Goths. So that's a little bit different than the wiping out of the Sarmatians that the movie seems to imply was the cause for recruiting them into the Roman military. Even if that did happen later, the movie seems to imply the Sarmatians were defeated after one big battle when the Romans and the Sarmatians meet for the first time, but as we just learned, that's not the case. The opening sequence in the movie continues talking about how a part of the agreement, if it can be called that when the alternative is death, between the Sarmatians and Romans was that the sons of each generation would be indebted to serve as knights for the Roman Empire. We hear the voiceover explain that as we see a younger Lancelot, who's played by Elliot Henderson Boyle, get taken from his home by Roman soldiers. At one point, he asks a soldier how long he'll be gone. Fifteen years is the reply, not including the months of travel it'll take to get to your post. The final bit of the opening sequence then explains that Lancelot was assigned to serve in the southern half of Britain. He makes mention of a 73-mile wall built three centuries earlier to protect the Roman Empire from native fighters at the north. Then, finally, he mentions his Roman commander in Britain, Artorius, or Arthur. From this bit, it's clear that the movie is suggesting that Lancelot and the rest of the legendary knights are Sarmatians. Even though the movie doesn't really say it here, we can clearly see Clive Owen's version of Arthur long to return home like his other knights, So maybe it's just me, but the implication that I got from that is that Arthur too is Sarmatian, at least according to the movie. So, is it true that Arthur and his legendary knights were Sarmatians? Well, maybe. As we learned earlier, we don't even really know if Arthur was real. 
The same goes for his knights. With that said, though, there is a theory that he could have been a Sarmatian who made his way to Britain thanks to the Roman Empire. The case for that theory is made in a great book by C. Scott Littleton and Linda Malcor called From Scythia to Camelot. I would highly recommend picking up a copy of that book to dig deeper because there's really no way we can cover everything in this episode. But it's worth pointing out that that book was published in 1994. That means it could be a part of that recent evidence that the movie mentions at the beginning. The authors suggest that perhaps we've been misinterpreting the Arthurian legend all this time. Perhaps, just perhaps, Arthur was, as the title of the book suggests, Scythian. Oh, and Linda Malcor also served as a historical consultant for the movie as well. Now, if you're not familiar with the Scythians, they're somewhat similar to the Sarmatians in that they were an Iranian nomadic people who lived near the Black Sea from somewhere around the 8th century BCE to the 4th century BCE. The Sarmatians then date back somewhere from around 5th century BCE until around 4th century CE. So many historians tie together the Scythians, the Sarmatians, and another group of nomadic people living in the steppe region called the Alans. They all lived throughout the plains of Central Asia and Eastern Europe, modern-day Hungary, China, Ukraine, and so on. Of course, I'm speaking in very large, overarching generalizations. While there is a lot that we know, the truth is there's also a lot that we don't know about these groups either. And it's important to point out that while the Scythians, Sarmatians, and Alans were Iranian nomads, they're nothing like the Iranians we think of today that descended from the Medes and Persians. Circling this back to Arthur, the concept we clearly see the movie follow is one that perhaps the person we know of today as King Arthur started from a man named Lucius Artois Castus, whose successful military career helped him win numerous battles between 183 and 185 CE. And those battles could very well be tied to Arthur over the century. Going back to the movie after this introduction, we get to meet all of Arthur's knights. Of course, there's Jan Gruffydd's version of Lancelot. Then there's Mads Mikkelsen playing Tristan, Joel Egerton as Gawain, Hugh Dancy as Galahad, Ray Stevenson as Dagonet, and Ray Winstone as Bors. Surprisingly, not in the movie are some other knights you might be familiar with if you studied the Arthurian legend, names like Percival, Kay, and Bedivere. But then again, there's a lot of knights that have been associated with Arthurian legend over the centuries. So, what of the knights that we see in the movie? Well, despite their legend, just like Arthur himself, it's really hard to prove that they're real. For example, Lancelot first popped up in early literature around 1170 in the 12th century. So, if the real King Arthur really was Lucius Artorius Castus, who lived in the 2nd century, that would mean Lancelot would have been effectively lost to history for a thousand years, assuming that the two lived side by side. The same sort of thing is true for some of the other knights, too, like Tristan, who you might be familiar with from the romantic story told in Richard Wagner's opera from 1859, Tristan and Isolde. Wagner wasn't the first one to come up with that story, though. The legend of Tristan dates back to a similar time as Lancelot in the 12th century. So again, we're roughly a thousand years after the real Arthur, assuming, of course, that Arthur lived in the 2nd century. But even if the real Arthur was from the 5th or 6th century, like a lot of other legends suggest, the 12th century is a long time afterward for those new characters in the tale to show up. That brings me to another point that's really important to keep in mind. Many of the authors who have contributed to Arthurian legend over the centuries have made up sources. 
by that. What I mean is that it was fairly common for authors to write works of fiction but claim them to be based on some real source to add to their authenticity. One example of this is the 12th century author who is credited with perhaps the greatest contribution to Arthurian legend, Geoffrey of Monmouth. In 1136, Geoffrey wrote The History of the Kings of Britain, and as part of it, he chronicled many of the things we now consider to be a part of the legend of King Arthur. But Geoffrey started off his book with a dedication, claiming that his book was merely a translation of an earlier book, one that has never been found or proven to have ever existed. Now, I can't help but notice the common theme here between a movie that claims to be based on a true story and a book that claims to be based on another source to lend authenticity to the story inside. Does that mean the story is true? Well, if the books are anything like the movies, I think we've proven that the results may vary. The next major plot point in the movie happens when Bishop Germanus doesn't give Arthur and his knights the papers they need for their freedom. Threatening Arthur that he'd have to travel across the Roman Empire to return home and he'd be caught without the papers, the bishop sends Arthur and his knights on one more quest before they earn their freedom. They must rescue a Roman citizen on the north side of the wall. That wall is the one we heard about in the beginning of the movie when Lancelot talks about how they built a 73-mile-long wall to keep out the native fighters from the north. Oh, and Bishop Germanus is played by Ivano Marascati in the film. Well, he's actually cast as Germanius, but that's a minor detail. The whole plot is made up. But there's just enough in there that's real to give it a sense that it might have been real. By that, what I mean is that geographically, it is true that Arthur would have needed to travel across the Roman Empire to go from the British Isle to Sarmathia. The wall that they mentioned is also true. It's called Hadrian's Wall, after Hadrian, the Roman Empire who built it around the year 122 CE. As for the purpose of the wall, that's something historians have debated the specifics of, but generally speaking, most agree it was, as the movie implies, to keep out the Picts north of the wall. The only source we have to give us an idea of the purpose for the wall comes from an ancient biographer of Hadrian who wrote a couple hundred years after Hadrian was alive that he was, quote, the first to build a wall 80 miles long from sea to sea to separate the Romans from the barbarians, end quote. That would be 80 miles according to the ancient Roman measurement. Today, that's about 73 miles or about 117.5 kilometers. With that in mind, the whole purpose behind Hadrian's Wall was to separate the Romans from the people north of the wall. Now, the movie's plot of there being a Roman family north of the wall that needs to be rescued doesn't really seem to hold up to that. And that's not the only part of the plot for Arthur's quest in the movie that doesn't really hold up. For example, we have the scrolls that Bishop Germanus possesses. According to the movie, those will offer Arthur and his knights safe passage across the Roman Empire to their homes in Sarmathia. Not really their homes. They were taken from their homeland at the age of 15. Remember, they didn't have homes then, so it's not like they have homes to go back to there anymore. But that's not the most unrealistic part of the plot here. According to the Associate Professor of English and Medieval Literature at Purdue University, Dr. Dorsey Armstrong, as she mentioned in her fantastic lecture on The Great Courses Plus, probably the most unbelievable part of this is that there would be enough people who could read the papers to make it worthwhile or that the Romans had enough checkpoints along the way to catch them. Long story short, even if the scrolls like Bishop Germanus held in the movie did exist, 
they wouldn't have held some sort of magical power over Arthur and his knights. Oh, and even though we don't know if Lucius Artorius Castus was actually the person that the legend of King Arthur was based on, but since the movie is using that theory as a basis for its story, I think it's important to point out something about Bishop Germanus himself. Yes, he was a real historical person, but he lived somewhere around 378 to 448 CE. Do you remember when Lucius Artorius Castus lived? That would be in the 2nd century, around 180 CE. Well over 100 years, at least, before Bishop Germanus. Although, in the movie's defense, I guess it does say it's 452 CE. I just wanted to point out that discrepancy, and it won't be the last time we come across it. Speaking of characters that are out of place in the timeline of history, if we bounce back to the movie after Arthur makes it to the Roman family's home, he runs into Kiera Knightley's character, Guinevere, as she's locked in a secret prison cell there. The Roman is Marius Honorus, and he's played by Ken Stott in the film, and he's a fictional character, and we already talked about how unlikely it would be for someone living north of the wall, so that gives you an idea of how accurate this part of the story is, but it's important because it introduces us to the character of Guinevere. Like Arthur, we don't know much about the real Guinevere. We don't know if she actually existed. There's even some versions of Arthur's legend that suggest Arthur had two wives. Both of them were named Guinevere. What we do know is that there's not a lot of connections between her and Lucius Artorius Castus. If Guinevere was around in the 2nd or 3rd century when Artorius was, she disappeared from history for a long time because her first appearance in historical records came in 1136 in Geoffrey of Monmouth's book, The History of the Kings of Britain. But I think we can give the movie a little bit of a pass here because how can you have a movie about King Arthur without Guinevere? In fact, we can say the same thing for many of the characters in the movie. For example, in the movie, we see the character of Merlin isn't Arthur's right-hand man, but rather the leader of a band of Celtic Britons called the Wodes, W-O-A-D-S. That name, Wodes, is probably referring to the blue paint that we see many of them wearing. As you can probably guess, whether or not that happened is also up for debate. For example, in the book written by Julius Caesar, yes, that Julius Caesar, called Seven Commentaries on the Gallic War, he mentions Wode, the blue paint, being used. But there's not really any proof of this or any other proof of this. And even that mention in his book was rather vague. As for Merlin himself, that is another character in the story we just don't know much about. Was he real? Maybe. Like Guinevere, Merlin really becomes a part of Arthurian legend in 1136 through Geoffrey of Monmouth's book. Many historians believe Geoffrey created Merlin, the wizard, out of the stories of the time about a man named Murden Wilt. That's M-Y-R-D-D-I-N-W-Y-L-L-T, or Murden the Wild. He wasn't associated with Arthur at all until Geoffrey's book, but there's a mention of him in another ancient text that plays Murden Wilt at the Battle of Arfted. That battle happened in 573 AD, and afterward, Murden was said to have gone crazy and disappeared into the forest. That's when and where he received the gift of prophecy, living among the forest. So again, the timeline wouldn't match at all to fit with Lucius Artorius Castus, the character that we see in the movie as Arthur. But then again, as we learned earlier, the movie did set the time period as being 452 CE. So I guess it was easier to transport Lucius Artorius Castus through the time than it would be to take everyone else back in time with him. And that brings us to Lancelot. I know we mentioned him earlier briefly, but Lancelot, as we know him, was first introduced by Chrétien 
de Troyes, who was another 12th century writer that contributed a lot to Arthurian legend. In fact, it was a later work by Cretien de Troyes that introduced the idea that Lancelot and Guinevere had an affair outside of her marriage to King Arthur. Well, that storyline doesn't make its way into this movie. Speaking of which, I know we haven't really gone scene by scene with this film the way we do for a lot of movies. That's because, well, as we've learned, there's a lot of threads of history that have been pieced together to make up this storyline. By that, what I mean is, yes, it is true that there was a Roman named Lucius Artorius Castus, and yes, it is very possible that he was the one who was behind the legend we now know as King Arthur. But if he was, it would have been in the 2nd century and not in the 5th or 6th where most of the other Arthurian legends and characters show up. So that would mean if he was Arthur, he didn't have Guinevere, Lancelot, or any of his knights. Oh, and by the way, I know I've used the term knight, but that, that term knight that the movie uses wasn't really around until the year 1100 CE. So it's not likely that if there wasn't Arthur in the 2nd century or even in the 5th or 6th century that he would have had knights. Warriors, perhaps, but not knights in shining armor. Much of that part of the legend was added as stories of King Arthur exploded around the Middle Ages. For example, Sir Thomas Mallory's book, Le Mort d'Arthur, or The Death of Arthur, which was published in 1485, and like the stories of Arthur that came before, continued to add to the tale. Then other Arthurs would take that work and add to it, like Alfred Lord Tennyson and T.H. White, who, more recently, in the 19th century, wrote books based on Mallory's that reignited the public's interest in King Arthur. T.H. White's book, The Once and Future King, plays off the part of the Arthurian legend that says King Arthur will return one day, something that many people have likened to the story of Jesus Christ and his return to save the world. In fact, it was this idea that King Arthur would one day return to save Britain during its darkest hour that made some believe he would come back during one of the two world wars. In the end, if there is one thing we know for sure about King Arthur, it's that the world has been fascinated by him for thousands of years. Even though we just don't know a lot about the real Arthur, or if he even really existed, that hasn't stopped authors to write about him, historians to study him, and archaeologists to search for the real locations from those stories. Each time a new book is written, a new movie released, or a new archaeological find is linked to Arthur, his story pops back up into the forefront of the public eye. Each time, a new layer gets added to the legend of King Arthur. There are very few stories that have continued on for so long. You might say that, even with today's movies about King Arthur, we are continuing to add to history that is thousands of years old. We are continuing to add to the story of King Arthur that, perhaps, people will talk about after us for thousands of years. For as long as his story keeps spreading from generation to generation, King Arthur will never die. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. Some episodes I feel like I've only asked more questions than I've answered, and this is one of those. There's no way I could hope to cover everything about King Arthur in a single episode, but I can point you in the direction for some great resources from authors, historians, and people who have studied King Arthur way more than I could hope to for a weekly podcast. 
I'd recommend starting with Dr. Dorsey Armstrong's series of 24 lectures called King Arthur, History and Legend over on The Great Courses Plus. I know they sponsor a lot of podcasts and this is not an ad for them, but Dr. Armstrong's series of lectures is one of the best that I've seen about King Arthur or heard. You can get on Audible too, another company that sponsors a lot of podcasts, but no, this isn't an ad for them. If you prefer reading, I would recommend The Reign of Arthur from History to Legend by Christopher Gidlow and, of course, the book that much of the movie is based on. That is called From Scythia to Camelot by C. Scott Littleton and Linda A. Malcor. As we learned, Linda was actually one of the historical consultants on the film. I'll add links to all of those as well as plenty more resources over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here's another review. This is actually the show's very first one-star review, and it comes from username Mission Accomplished over on Apple Podcasts with the title, Long Slow Slog. It's nice that the guests sometimes know something, but the host can hardly manage to verbalize his dumb questions. Thank you for the feedback, Mission Accomplished. Now, if if you, dear listener, has some feedback, I'd love to hear it. Although my only request is that you would just email it to me directly at Dan at Based on a True Story podcast. I prefer that way so I can clarify what you mean by it and actually work to improve it if possible. For example, if Mission Accomplished had emailed me, then I would have asked if they only listened to the interview episodes because there aren't many of those. Now, I'll be the first to admit my interviewing skills aren't up there with people who do it for a living. I think a big part of that is because, well, as they say, practice makes perfect. And well, this is episode 100, and out of the first 100 episodes of Based on a True Story, I've had four guests on the show. Since the other 96 episodes aren't interviews, I think it'd be fair to say that this show is not a show with guests. So yes, I agree with you, mission accomplished, that I can definitely work on my interviewing skills. Hopefully, you find the other 96 episodes a little more enjoyable. But if not, there's a ton of other great podcasts out there. I know my show won't be for everyone, and that's perfectly understandable. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, we now know for certain who the real King Arthur was. Number two, the term knights wasn't around in the 5th century like we see in the movie. Number three, there really is an ancient Roman wall in Britain. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number one. Okay, maybe the word lie is a strong word, but we just don't know if the legend of King Arthur really came out of Lucius Artorius Castus. There's a strong case for it, yes. But it's so very close to being the truth, but it's still not something we can prove. Thousands of years later, I just don't think we can definitively say without the shadow of a doubt that we know for sure. So, In my mind, that would make number one the lie, since we don't know if Lucius Artorius Castus was absolutely the basis for King Arthur. And that brings us to an end to our story today, but it doesn't have to be the end of your learning about King Arthur. Don't forget you can find links to plenty of books, resources, and more over at the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.